Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Andy Rowe Show. James Wilkes is the leading man in the most watched documentary in history, The Game Changers. It's a Netflix film on plant-based diets, and he's going to talk us through some of the controversy surrounding the film and how he got some of the biggest names on the planet involved, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, Lewis Hamilton, and Novak Djokovic. Plus, he's going to touch on his career in the UFC, training special forces soldiers and what to do if you're attacked on the street plus we've got a couple of new sponsors on board for the season which we're really excited about they're both quality products and i've got some discounts for you as well so you should be excited about this we've got the award-winning pack coffee which is some of the best tasting coffee i've ever had i'm not just making it up they actually won the great taste 2020 Packed goes straight to the source in search of the world's best beans, pay coffee farmers prices they deserve. Their subscription plans are tailored to you. You can select exactly how you want your coffee and when it's delivered. You can pause, cancel or change your plan anytime online. It's also delivered through your letterbox, which is super convenient. We'll help you get started with five quid off your first bag. Go to packcoffee.com, that's P-A-C-T coffee.com, create your flexible coffee plan, enter the code Andy Rowe at the checkout and get specialty coffee through your letterbox and the code is valid when you create a packed coffee plan, so it's for new customers. You may have heard me speak about Sons and their hair care products, well now the lads at Sons are tackling another area of men's health, how to help your gut. One in four people suffer from gut health issues like IBS, abdominal pain, gas and bloating. And gut health is vital to your general health and wellness, with 70% of your immune system located in your gut. If you have gut issues or are just looking to optimize your gut health, Suns have the product for you. Suns Live Bacteria Supplement is clinically proven to treat digestive problems and improve your gut health. It was effective in helping 8 out of 10 people with their gut issues in one particular study. Check out suns.co.uk and use the code ANDY25 to get 25 quid off your first order and you'll be supporting the podcast and the work we do, which is much appreciated. James Wilkes, thank you very much for coming on the show. Andy, thanks for having me. Mate, the documentary. God, what's the response been like? It was a, it's, a, it's gone pretty well, isn't it? Yeah, it's been incredible. I mean, we've had 1.5 billion media impressions about the film, including 40,000 organic press articles written. Mm-hmm. Interest in plant-based eating more than tripled worldwide within weeks of the film hitting Netflix, according to uh, many metrics uh, on Google Trends. Really? And our estimates, Netflix and then also Yoku, which is sort of a, a Netflix equivalent in China, don't give their numbers. But we've had sort of analysis done. We think it's at least 75 million probably well over a hundred million. And so it, that would make it the most viewed documentary of all time. Holy hecka. I mean, has that yeah, surprised you a little bit? Yeah. I mean, we knew, we thought we'd have a big splash, but I don't think that it would have, 
I don't think we ever imagined that it would have been that big, mm. uh, right? So it's just had a huge impact. I think the timing is right. Like the world is ready for to hear that message, but didn't think it would be that big. And it's just been massive. And we're still getting, I think we're still getting like 120,000 new visits per month to our website, which, you know, obviously as owners, I think that recruited like 10% of people go to see the film. There was some estimates go to see the website. So that would mean there's still 1.2 million new uh, viewers per month of the of the documentary, and then it was the best-selling uh, documentary of all time on iTunes before that, and even on pre-sales, it was beating uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Toy Story 4, Lion King 2. So yeah, it just had a huge uh, viewership, and I think that's translated to a lot of impact. And personally, now I, I, it's hard for me to go anywhere, uh, the grocery store, Home Depot. The meat section at the grocery store, you can't be seen there. Yeah, the, <laughs> the, the, the gym. You know, it's hard for me to go anywhere without people coming up and saying, hey, saw the film. You know, not everyone's gone all the way plant-based, but, it, you know, some people have gone, their whole family's gone, you know, they'll tell me, or they've gone 80% plant-based or whatever. So it's, it's having a huge impact. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I come from a, a farming background. So I'm never going to be mm. vegan. I'm never going to be vegetarian. Uh, yeah. But there, there, there are messages in that in the documentary and that kind of did hit home a little bit. And, you know, I have started to like be a little bit more conscious about how much, how much meat I'm having or, and, and trying to be, trying to be a little bit more balanced. But the main thing that I've, I've changed is the getting the supplements, getting the, um, getting the B12 into me and stuff. And that, that's, that's made a big change to me, like straight away, like bam. Wow. That's that's great to hear. Yeah. yeah so that's, that's the thing, right. Is a lot of people think that, if you're on a completely vegan diet, you're the only one that is going to need B12 supplements. But as we mentioned in the film, up to 40% of people are low in B12. And the vast majority of those are actually meat eaters. And it especially becomes a problem as you get older, like 35, 40, you get lower intrinsic factor, which is sort of helps uh, convert that. So um, yeah, I think uh, obviously you can do, sort of check your B12 levels with blood tests at the doctors. Actually, there's a test called methylmalonic acid test, which is more reliable. But if you can't do that, right, if you don't, can't afford to go and get blood tests every year, um, it's probably just the sort of insurance to have a B12 supplement, again, whether you're plant-based or mm. not. Talk me through the situation on how you ended up in the Joe Rogan podcast, because that, that was the debunk of debunks. And then, uh, yeah, talk me through the situation. Yeah, so, um, so Chris Kresser, who sort of puts himself out there as having master's level training in nutrition, but what he doesn't mention is that his actual master's is in, um, oh, he's an acupuncturist. Uh, so he never mentions that, right? He just says, I've got master's level training. So basically he took a couple of nutrition courses during his master's degree for acupuncture. And so like, you know, if you wanted to learn about acupuncture, maybe it'd be great to talk to Chris, but if you want to learn about nutrition, who's sort of been put on the Joe Rogan podcast, I think like four times before we had a debate as an expert, he basically, I saw that he was going on Joe Rogan and he was going to debunk the film. And so I reached out to Joe and said, hey, can I come on the podcast when he comes on? And Joe said, no, you've had the chance to put out the film. I'll let him come on. So Chris Krenner went on and did a three-hour debunk of the film. Then Joe said, okay, do you want to come on and debate him? And I said, yeah, well, I'd like to bring my science expert. I got turned down for that. So they didn't want our science expert on there. They wanted me, and I'm just an athlete, right, and a film, now a film producer. But I've obviously read a lot about science, but I, I would have much preferred to have our science expert you know, on, mm. on the podcast, but nonetheless, I went on there and debated. 
I was pretty amped up. I don't think the first hour went that well. I don't think I really carried myself that well because I was pretty uh, emotional, right? I spent seven yeah, years making the film. Yeah, I spent seven years making the film and Chris said he spent seven hours researching to debunk it. And I've, I've literally spent during the making of that film over 3,000 hours reading peer-reviewed science on nutrition. So I don't claim to be an expert. I've got experts that, that work for us, but it's just like the science is very clear. In fact, the, the documentary is the only documentary to ever be accredited by the Department of Defense, the Defense Health Agency, which oversees nutrition for the U.S. military. Yeah, we'll talk about that because you've, you've done quite a bit of work with the Navy SEALs and the U.S. military, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, so yeah. previously I was a combatives instructor, right? Yeah. So not just the sports side of martial arts, but, you know, we're including sort of weapon takeaways, two-on-one tactics, headbutts, biting, eye gouging, <laughs> you know, this type of stuff. That's a whole section that I want to talk to you about. So we'll, we'll, say, we'll save that and we'll come, we'll come back to it because okay. that, that's, quite, that's quite a big piece of what I wanted to speak to you about. Yeah, so the, yeah. the, the actual... So when, yeah, you got on the show, um, you got yeah. on the show with Chris Kresler, the, the first hour, as you said... You're pretty emotional. You had him on trial. Yeah, I mean, just, you know what's interesting is when what I try to do is put myself in other people's shoes. So when I watched his three-hour debunk, I tried to think, I'm going to put myself in the position of someone that didn't make the film and hasn't spent over 3,000 hours reading the peer-reviewed science, right? And when I listen to it, I find it quite worrying because I think everything that he just said, if I didn't know what I knew, sounds very convincing. And I even had some people uh, on Instagram message me and say, hey, uh, you know, awesome. I've gone vegan, you know, loving it, blah, blah, blah. And then the same person after the Chris Cresser debunk messaged me and says, I can't fucking believe that, uh, you know, you lied to us and now I've stopped being vegan and blah, blah, blah. So I can understand why if you listen to Chris Cresser you would think, okay, you know, the game changer was just all made up or whatever. Mm. And then, of course, I went on and de de debated them, and then the guy, same guy writes me and apologizes, saying, wow, you just totally destroyed him. What was it like when you guys stopped recording? I prepared for that, and I had a, over 150 slides, all with scientific references. I was actually ready to go hours and hours longer. We only covered in that debate about 20% of everything I'd prepared for. But unfortunately, Chris actually had to fly out. Uh, he, so we had to cut it right at that three hours and 45 minute mark. He seemed so deflated at the end. Mm. And I did say, I apologized. I said, sorry, Chris, to like really go after you in that argument. But I think what you're doing is dangerous. Like the, the recommendations that you're dangerous, then they're, they're not in alignment with, you know, all of the leading nutritional bodies, like the Dietary Guideline Advisory Committee or the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. He wasn't very happy. He looked pretty deflated and sad. And, and yeah, yeah. You know, as a result, I'm confident that Joe will never have him back on the show because he's been exposed as as not having a good understanding about nutrition. I guess one of the points that he that he made, and I guess like a, a point that a lot of people make about the, a major criticism of the documentary is that like, there, there wasn't any any balance, really, was there? Uh, no, I mean, so like in our view, we did actually um, interview some folks. So we interviewed Lauren Cordain, who's the guy that trademarked the paleo diet, um, Rob Wolf, who's a big paleo diet proponent, but they're not anthropologists, right? And when we showed that footage to like the six or seven anthropologists that, you know, world's leading anthropologists that we interviewed, uh, only a couple, we actually made it into the cut of the film. They were just laughing at them. And it didn't seem, we did have a piece where it was like, we'd have them say something. And then you'd have true experts, like the head of anthropology at Harvard or the guy that sequenced the, the woolly mammoth genome from a university in London. And 
They were literally laughing at, uh, at the things that were being said. And so we could have done that, but it sort of seemed a bit like more Michael Moore gotcha type documentary when we started doing that and it didn't really fit. So it's not like we cherry picked people that had, um, we literally got the head of nutrition at Harvard, the head of anthropology at Harvard, the president of the American College of Cardiology, the lead delegate for urology for the American Medical Association. These were the types of experts that we had in the film. And so we reached out to the leading experts and there's sort of this general consensus and people can argue between 90% plant-based, 95% plant-based, 100% plant-based, right? But the consensus of the organizations and the world's leading experts is that we should be eating plant-centered diets. What do you mean by plant-centered diets? So that, does that mean like with me as well, but mainly plants? Plant-forward or plant-centered or plant-exclusive. Like all of the organizations recommend those things, right? So for example, the Academy of uh, Nutrition and Dietetics says that vegan and vegetarian diets are helpful for all stages of the life cycle, including pregnancy, infancy, you know, adolescence, adulthood, including for athletes and pregnant people. So basically what I'm saying is the, the evidence that eating sort of, let's just pick up these numbers out of the air. The evidence for eating 50% plants versus 90% plants, the evidence for shifting towards 90% plants would be very strong. The evidence from shifting for 90 or 95% plants to 100% plants, I still think exists. And out of the precautionary principle, I would still eat 100% plants. But the evidence is not as strong, right? right? It's hard to say, like, if you ate turkey on Thanksgiving and you ate a bit of salmon once a month and you had a couple of eggs here and there, you know what I mean? The, yeah. the evidence for, like, being completely vegan from a scientific point of view, not from an ethical point of view or you know, environmental point of view, but from a scientific sort of in terms of health, I don't think the evidence is super strong uh, and not as evident from 95 to 100, mm. if that makes sense. So I think the way to think about it is not excluding things, but like trying new plant-based things. And what you'll tend to find is like after you eat those things, you might start feeling a bit better and you just start trying a few more things and it crowds those other things out. Mm. I don't think for most people, it's a great idea to go, okay, I'm never eating animal products again and think of exclusion and trying to do it overnight. I think for most people, it's better just to start trying some plant-based meals. Maybe it's breakfast, maybe it's one day a week, maybe it's a couple of days a week or whatever and, and see how you feel and and just go from there. And like, I don't think I should be telling anyone what they should be eating. I just want to put the information out there because mm. I felt like I'd been lied to and then people can make their own uh, more informed decisions. Going back to Arnie, like, did you manage to keep your cool around him? You didn't throw any like Terminator quotes? Like, what was it like when you first first met? Yeah, we tried to we tried to get some Terminator quotes out of him, but he was actually it was about an hour late to the interview because he was doing some other charity work. And he showed up and sat down. He says, "Right, I've got two minutes." And we were thinking, you know, we've set up all this like we've got the couple of cameras on these moving pods and sound, and we've been waiting. And he's like, "We've got two minutes." And we were thinking. No, we need like at least 10 minutes. And uh, he said, no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. So yeah, he was he was great. I haven't had the opportunity to hang out with him much. He did come in and watch a screening. Funny thing was he came to watch a screening and, and Jim Cameron said, hey, Arnold, come watch this Game Changer screening. So Arnold came and he was sitting right in front of me and he was watching it and it looked like he was enjoying it. And then afterwards he turned around and said, uh, you know what, I was watching it. I was thinking, why didn't they interview me for this film? He didn't, he didn't know because it had been a couple of years since we interviewed him. He didn't know that the interview that he did, because he does so many interviews, right? Right. Was was part of this. It was the same film. So he's watching that. And like halfway through, he thought to myself, he said, I thought to myself, why didn't they include me for this film? They should have interviewed me. And then all of a sudden, I popped up on the screen. <laughs> he said. And so that, that was pretty cool. 
Can I ask, because your dad, your dad features in the game changes. Can I ask how he's doing? Yeah, no, he's, he's doing way better. So yeah, he had a heart attack, was rushed to the hospital, had two emergency stents put in. And I, I'd been talking to him about sort of this plant-based diet before. And, you know, people have been eating the same way for, well, for him for like 70 years, you know? And so it's, it's hard for people like that to change unless there's some sort of motivation, like a health scare. Then after that, he jumped in 100% uh, plant-based. He's now, I'd say, 90 95%. Uh, plant-based and of course it's been a few years now because we filmed that in probably 2017 right film came out in 2019 so now it's 2021 so it's uh but yeah four four or so years later and uh he's had no problems he's, he's doing great right that's good that's good to hear yeah obviously there's people um that well most people have got a, a habit and you were talking before about you know you're not asking them to just go full vegan there must be some sort of advice that you could give people to or some useful hints on, on how they can kind of start to bring in more plants or is there a spice that will make things better that you know makes you feel like you're eating meat or I don't know, there must be some sort of tricks and hints that you've got. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the first thing is one of the things you can do is make some simple swaps, right? So if you're eating, if you're drinking cow's milk, right? there's lots of plant-based milks you can just directly switch that out for, whether that's pouring on your cereal or in your smoothie or milk is called for in a recipe or whatever, you know, it's soy milk, hemp milk, um, you know, all sorts of different almond milk, all sorts of different plant milks you can switch that out for. So that was a pretty easy thing for me to do. Um, you know, in my smoothies, for example, just swap out cow's milk for. So like, for example, plantizing your, your recipes, right? So if you eat a beef chili, maybe you switch it out and now it's a three bean chili, right? Or my wife makes this real good uh, sort of cottage pie uh, or shepherd's pie type thing. And instead of the beef, it's got, it's got basically got some uh, brown lentils in it. No, um, so no, 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 I'm not having that. Not having that. <laughs> not yeah. having that. But so, so there's things that you can swap out, right? And then it's learning new recipes, which can be sort of fun for some people. But so you can take your old recipes and switch them out. You can switch out simple things like, uh, like, like the milk, like I said. And then it's not necessarily about having a completely plant-based meal, right? It's more about the percentage of plants versus animals that you're eating. So that doesn't mean you can have every dish with some animal products in it, but rather than having this much meat and this much, you know, beans and this much veg or whatever, maybe you got a bit more beans and a bit less meat. You know what I mean? Mm. So like, if you look at some of the Asian countries, you know, where health has been pretty good up until, um, you know, the sort of introduction of Western foods and McDonald's and so forth, you know, meat would be a very sort of small part of the plate. We've made it very, in the West, we've made it very sort of a central part of the plate. And these things not only just help behaviorally, but also in terms of your microbiome, which is the bacteria in your gut. If you switch overnight from eating what you're eating now to completely whole plant foods, you're going to have gastrointestinal issues. You're going to have gas and bloating because you're going to go from like the standard American diet, people are only eating 15 grams of fiber a day, Right. And now all of a sudden you're eating 50, 60 grams of fiber. And that switch, while the bacteria in your gut hasn't had a time to switch for the type of bacteria that's going to digest the plant foods uh, better, um, you know, you're going to have some gastrointestinal issues. So gradually working things in, making swaps, maybe learning some new recipes, and maybe says some things that you already eat. So people say, oh, I'm never going to eat any vegan food. I'm like, well, do you eat a banana or like an apple? Or, uh, you know, there's lots of things you actually already eat, right, that are completely vegan that are, are just made from plants so like maybe you eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich 
uh, once every two weeks, maybe eat that once a week. You know, so there's, there's, so there's, there's things you're already eating, which you can up, there's switches you can make, and then you can learn new recipes. And just trying to think of not excluding the animal products, but just gradually incorporating mm. more plant-based products and see what you like. You might not like, you know, people always ask me, what's in your smoothie that you eat every day? You know, my smoothie, 750 calories, 35 grams of protein, no protein powder in it. Uh, although I do, I'm not against protein powder, I occasionally have some. But that smoothie that I have most days, maybe you don't like that smoothie. So don't necessarily eat what I eat. What, what do you put in your smoothie? I have a smoothie each morning. I put protein mix in it. But what, so what do you actually put in your smoothie? Yeah, if I'm in a rush, I will use um, uh, a protein powder. But usually I'm, uh, I don't have that rush or I'll get it ready the night before or whatever. And so it'll have a cup of soy milk, a cup of greens, a cup of berries or cherries, one tablespoon of flaxseed, one tablespoon of pumpkin seed. Uh, one tablespoon of hemp seed. Uh, I'll actually put some peas in there, frozen peas straight yeah. in because you can't even taste it. Yeah, and you get some, you know, more legumes in there, which is one of the best foods, one of the best foods you can eat, you know, legumes like beans and greens. Uh, so greens is one and then beans is a legume or lentils, some of the best foods you can eat on, on the planet. One Brazil nut for the selenium. I always make I eat a Brazil nut every day. Right. I'm sure I'm missing something there, but that's, uh, oh, some beet powder. Yeah, and I do do, uh, and I put creatine in actually as well. Three grams of uh, creatine went on days that I'm working out, which is right. usually about five or six days a week. I want to get on to the um, the stuff that you did with the U.S. Army. So talk me through. So you, yeah, you mentioned before the the documentaries being used by the U.S. Defense Force. Yeah, so uh, we we did a number of screenings before the film even came out across multiple uh, military bases and universities. You know, basically, there's a couple of things there. The military, a lot of the military are actually overweight. And when they can't pass really? their physicals every year. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of the military overweight. And also, they're really struggling to recruit people that can pass the physical tests. In fact, they're having to lower some of the physical standards in order to recruit these upcoming, like, teenagers and, you know, 18, 20, 21-year-olds. I'm not blaming that all on meat, right? I do think that meat plays a factor. I think that, you know, obviously people aren't exercising, but really it is about diet. I mean, the, the evidence of exercise helping you lose weight, independent of the caloric deficit, which is a key point to say, I don't want to say to people that exercise has no weight bearing on your weight, but exercise has very little impact on your weight, independent of the caloric deficit, right? You, you follow what I'm saying? So caloric is how many calories you're eating and deficit means you're down. If you're in a caloric surplus, right? Yeah. Then if you if you burn 2,000 a day and you eat 2,500, you gain one pound of fat a week. It's just simple math. 500 calories, one day a week, seven days, 3,500 calories. 3,500 calories is equivalent to one pound, mm. right? Yeah. So if you want to lose a pound of fat a week and you are burning um, 2,000, you need to eat 1,500. It's like simple math, right? And you caloric, you would just stay the same. You eat 2,000, you burn 2,000 or whatever, or 3,000 and 3,000. Let's say in your state, you were just sitting around and you did nothing. Um, your basal metabolic rate was 2,000 calories, and that's what you're eating. Uh, you're eating 2,000 calories. You'd stay the same, right? But let's say you needed to lose weight. If you exercise and now burn 2,500 and eat 2,000, you'd lose a pound of fat a week because you're in a 500 calorie deficit. That's essentially no different than not exercising and eating 1,500 calories a day. Right. You would lose the same amount of weight. And so exercise itself, although can help because, you know, if you exercise a lot, maybe you just don't, you don't want to eat as much. You, you'd have a drive to eat more, but it might not be more enough to make up the difference, if that makes sense. And so 
exercise itself, independent of caloric restriction uh, or caloric deficit, I should say, actually has almost no bearing, actually. So diet is a much bigger factor for weight loss uh, than exercises. So yeah, a lot of the, the military is overweight. Um, a lot of people are failing their physical exams. And imagine you might train a soldier and spend a million dollars on training a soldier and they can't pass their physical and they get kicked out of the military. That's a huge expense to retrain a, a soldier to fill that position. And then also there's something called warfighter effectiveness, right? So they're looking at like the performance of the soldier. So with those two things in account, the millions and millions of dollars that are spent by the US military on healthcare, the retraining costs for people that aren't passing their physicals and trying to optimize the warfighter, they're looking for like the edge on, on what they can do with exercise modalities and with nutrition. And they recognize that eating, you know, getting more plants in the diet is going to facilitate those things. And by the way, in terms of people thinking about weight loss, while the caloric restriction is a, sort of a mathematical formula, that doesn't mean that that's the only way that you should look at how to, how to lose weight. So for example, there's a number of mechanisms by which you could lose weight, but in terms of plant-based diets, because most plant foods are lower in calories for the amount of bulk, right? So for example, leafy green vegetables, 100 calories a pound. Other vegetables, 200 calories a pound. Fruit, 300 calories a pound. Whole grains and legumes, 600 calories a pound, right? So you can see like versus uh, meat, which would be 1500 calories a pound or oil, 4,000 calories a pound, right? So you can see that you have stretch receptors in your stomach and it tells your body that you're full. So imagine if you only ate oil, right? You, you would have to eat so much oil for your body to feel full. You'd have so many calories because it's so calorically dense. Now, if you're eating whole grains and legumes and fruits and vegetables, you're going to hit those stretch receptors sooner and you're, not going to, you're naturally not going to overeat without having to try to starve yourself. If I was thinking, okay, I want to go veggie, I'm thinking I'm going to the veggie section in the, and that's all I'm going to eat. But there's that, obviously there's more to it than that. And if you were going to go veggie, obviously you do your research. But yeah, there's, there's other things that you can put in there to actually make sure you're getting the right stuff. Yeah, and like what you, like what you said earlier, you said you put a protein yeah. shake in there, right? Like a yeah. scoop of protein. So what, what is that? What is that from? Is it whey protein? Yeah, it's whey protein. Yeah. Right. So just imagine like there's not an easier swap than that. Right. It's like just take that protein and just switch out pea protein or something else. There you just made a change that's going to have, you know, a small but potentially significant difference. And so that's the that's the sort of myth, right, is that people think, oh, I'm going to eat twigs and berries and some leaves and stuff on a vegan diet. Let's just have it like conceptually. Let's just say your plate was half whole grain pasta and half veggies, and you were stayed at the weight you wanted to be. If you wanted to lose weight, you would cut down the whole grain pasta a little bit and eat more veggies. You'd have the same bulk of food, but you'd have less calories. But if you wanted to gain weight, you would lower the veggies a little bit and increase the pasta amount. Does that make sense? Yeah, you'd yeah. You'd have the same bulk, but you'd have changed your caloric... Um, the amount of calories that are on that plate, yeah. Yeah, and that's a simplistic, um, a simplistic version. You have been training Navy SEALs, right? Yeah, I mean, I've trained a whole group. I mean, people sort of focus on that one because they sound the most badass, but... They are pretty badass. Yeah, no, they are, for sure, and super elite. But I've sort of trained a whole wide range of government agencies from DEA, U.S. Marshals, uh, Rest Response Team, the Marines. In fact, the Marines for a while had a fight team, uh, which was their full MOS, their full job, basically. So I would train them, uh, those guys three days a week, and they were doing other training outside of that. They like they have a wrestling team or a boxing team or a band, right? You can be in the military band and that's all you do is right. 
So, uh, so I trained the fight team and then I'd also train. So the Marines, for example, have a Marine Corps martial arts program, the MUCMAP. And then there's instructors. Uh, you get your belt system and you get a black belt and an instructor and the instructor trainers. So I would go in also once a month and train the instructor trainers that then train the instructors that all fly in and then go back to their bases or whatever. They must be pretty gnarly going in and like training the Navy SEALs. Like you got, got any good stories on that? Like you, cause those guys are hard as fuck. Like, I know that I know you've got skills, but they're hard. Oh, no, totally. And yeah, I haven't got anything uh, negative to say about them, but there's been some groups where, and definitely not the Navy SEALs, but there's been some groups where you think these guys are going to be like really good fighters or whatever. And they've got their skill set where they're really good at shooting and really good at like skydiving and halo, like high altitude, low opening and all this sort of stuff. But it doesn't naturally, it doesn't always make them amazing fighters. I remember when I was, I was quite young. I was probably like 23 and I went in to train the Marines and they weren't really listening to me, uh, you know, because I was young and they were thinking, who's this kid, you know, mm. training me? And I was teaching something called the rapid assault tactics, which is basically you you enter in with an eye jab or something called a destruction where someone throws a punch you, and you block it with the point of your elbow, right, to cause some pain. You do something called a straight blast where you're running at them with these sort of circular punches. And then you go in, you thumb the eyes, headbutt, uh, elbow and knee. And they just weren't paying much attention. And then... I taught this move, uh, this knee destruction. So when someone kicks you, instead of blocking it with your arm or your leg, you you point the tip of your knee. You know, you bend your heel up so that they, you take the kick on the point of your knee. And then once they started kicking each other, you know, a few of them caught the point of the knee. And by the way, I've seen multiple legs snap from that technique. Once they started doing that, they were like hopping around, holding their shins. They, I think they started realizing that what I was teaching was uh, legitimate and they, they started listening. <laughs> What are the main bits of advice that you, you give to Navy SEALs? Because obviously they're definitely going to need some skills to kill people, but also like you've got limited time with them. So you must have a, a couple of really crucial sets of drills or a couple of really crucial, yeah. like I'm going to poke you in the eye and this is as good as you're going to get. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's not, actually it's, it's funny you say that, right? Because no one builds muscle over their eyes, their throat and their groin. The problem is with combat sports like boxing and mixed martial arts is it really favors, because you have to sort of punch and kick, it favors people that are bigger and stronger. But if you take, that's but you're not allowed to hit the eyes and you're not allowed to hit the throat, you're not allowed to hit the groin. So in terms of self-defense or effective fighting, if you can focus on those areas, it takes the advantage away of people that are bigger, stronger, faster. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's a lot of what we're doing is looking at uh, both eye rakes, where you're sort of flicking across the eye before you headbutt. We're lifting up the chin in order to elbow the throat, which wouldn't be allowed in the UFC. Basically, what you want to do is take everything that's not allowed in the UFC, and, and you want to do that, right? Like, you're not allowed to hit the, the, uh, the brainstem back here in, in boxing or in MMA. You want to hit that. You, uh, you want to gouge the eyes, right? You want to cup and slap and, and, and potentially burst the eardrum. You want to attack the throat, the groin. Having said that, you can't just rely on like having these techniques. And the, the tricky thing with that is that you can't practice them day in, day out, like you can with arm bars and chokes and punching. So what you want to do is sort of incorporate some mixed martial arts type training with thinking about these, these uh, sort of more lethal targets and also sort of building that into a framework of, you know, if you're a civilian, a sort of self-defense framework, being aware, trying to avoid certain areas, being able to talk people down, you know, posturing, there's all these other types of things that aren't quite fighting, but they're to do with de-escalating or escalating or whatever you want to do. And in a military context, there's multiple opponents, 
there's weapons involved. You sort of take it all into context. But yeah, aiming for those target areas that don't have big muscles built over them, uh, sort of the, when you've got the short amount of time, you want to be able to focus on, on that type of stuff. If you were giving one of your kids advice, because you know you knew they're going to be out in the world, and, and there must be a couple of bits of advice that you give them as far as self-defense goes. If someone's going to attack you, this is what you do. Yeah, I mean, the first thing is, like, remember, it's not all about the actual fight. The first thing is trying to avoid it. So don't go stupid places at stupid times with stupid people, right? That's, that's one of the, the biggest things, right? Like, don't go to 7-Eleven at 3 in the morning on a, on a Friday night. Uh, and don't go and, like, get your cash out of the ATM at midnight in, in a shady area, right? So that's one thing is trying to avoid it. And then also, um, there's something sort that uh, was developed by um, a colonel in the military called Jeff Cooper, it's the color code of mental awareness. So you sort of, a lot of people are in this, what are they called stage white, where they're just not totally oblivious to what pe- what's going on. And you want to be in this code yellow when you're in this sort of relaxed state of alertness. And I, I tested that, I, I trained this sort of thing when I did advanced driving. I did advanced driving with police in England. And you do this sort of narration as you're driving. You're saying, I'm, I'm driving, there's a 40 mile an hour coming up. Uh, sign coming up. I'm going to let off the gas 30 yards before then so that the car naturally is going 40 by the time I hit the sign. It's a school day. It's 2 p.m. Kids are probably coming out. Oh, there's a kid on the right. He might cross the street. They're playing with a ball. You see what I'm saying? Mm. So you're doing this sort of narrative and like actually doing it and saying it when you're first learning to do advanced driving. And you can do the same thing in a self-defense situation. You don't have to say it out loud, but most people just on their phones, looking at stuff, walking around, you know what I mean? And they're not aware. So I think one of the biggest things is avoidance and then awareness and being, you know, that guy, why is that guy wearing a long trench coat and it's 80 degrees? Maybe I should cross the street and and just in case, you know? Mm. So that's one of the things. And then in terms of you actually get into an uh, altercation, so you go up to stage orange where you think now there's a potential threat and then code red where you're actually in, uh, you're in a fight. You know, I use sort of these defensive postures. So I'm putting up hands where I don't look like I'm ready to fight, but I'm ready to protect myself or strike. So we call that the fence. And then there's tricks you can do. So you can ask someone, so, hey, what are you trying? You ask a question. The engaged brain is easier to knock out. There's studies that have shown that. When you get adrenaline, you get um, a tunnel vision. And so you can't see much of your periphery. So that's also true of your opponent. So I say, hey, calm down. And once they've touched me twice, like I'm backing up, I'm saying touch me twice, I'm ready to go. Because if I keep backing up and they've touched me twice, you know, they've, you know, they've hit my fingers and I'm trying to back up, then I'm going to say, hey, what are you trying to say? Or wait, don't I know your brother? You ask a question that engages the brain and you put your hand like this, it's called exclamation fence. You put it outside of their uh, periphery and then bang, throw in the, the strike from there. They don't see it coming because it's from the periphery and they've got tunnel vision and you've asked a question and a lot of times they got to answer the question. They, I say, uh, don't I know your brother? Or what are you trying to say? And they go, ah, and they try to answer. Now their jaw is open and they're easier to get knocked out. Wow. <laughs> easier said than done, I reckon. Yeah. But for sound advice, your, your MMA career, mixed martial arts, pretty interesting as well. How did you end up on Ultimate Fighter? When I moved to America to study with Paul Vunak, who developed the Navy SEAL and Armed Combat Program, the Rapid Assault Tactics, back in the 90s. Uh, and I came here in 2000 uh, after I finished my my degree in England. I did a four-year degree in England. And then I came to the States to train with him for six months. And here I am uh, 21 years later. 
I, I was not studying martial arts for the sport. I was studying for self-defense and I was teaching self-defense. So I was teaching civilians and military and this type of thing. But when you sort of study a lot of martial arts, you think, well, I'd like to test myself. And there's no way of testing, ethically testing street fighting. And so the closest thing, although it's still a sport, the closest thing was mixed martial arts. And so I'd have these occasional professional fights once every year or two. And then in 2008, I was turning 30. And I didn't feel like I'd accomplished much. And I had two roommates that I was uh, living with and we were watching The Ultimate Fighter. And I said, I could beat all those guys. And uh, they said, yeah, go on then. Don't just say it. And because I was turning 30, it was quite pivotal for me in 2008. And I thought, I don't want to look back and say to people, oh, I could have, you know, I was good enough. I could have been in the UFC. And so I was fortunate enough, helped uh, uh, Joe Stevenson, a, a previous winner of the Ultimate Fight, to train for one of his fights as a sparring partner. And so he put my name forward, managed to, to get on the show, had to go to England and fight the, the UK people just to get on the English team. And then it's narrowed down to like, what, eight people on the English team and eight people on the... So you start with 16 Brits and 16 Americans. You fight the Brits to get on the team, narrowed down to eight. Now you got, come back to the States, uh, to Vegas, and then uh, just just went from there, basically. What was it like when the cameras are off? Was there a lot of smack talking going on like, or when the cameras are off? The cameras was... are on nearly all the time. And there's some cameras in the corner of the room, or sometimes I'd wake up in the morning and the camera's right in your face. Even in the bathroom, in the toilet, there was a camera staring right down at the toilet. Jesus. So you never know when the camera's on or off, right? There's crews going around, but there's cameras throw out the house. You're not allowed to leave the house unless you're going to the training center. So that was a bit of a, a shock. It wasn't any different with the cameras were on or off, to be honest. I only had sort of beef with one person. I don't know how it started, but Demarcus Johnson, who ended up being my opponent in the finale, he just didn't like me for whatever reason, so we didn't get along too well. Um, so there's a bit of smack talking. And one of the hardest things was, as the show progresses, people are, they're out of the running. They're, they're not, they're, they can't fight anymore, but they still stay there for the training. Well, the problem with that is that you know, there's plenty of alcohol in the house. They're drinking and partying late at night. They've got no fights coming up. And uh, you're there trying to get some sleep and train properly and keep your weight right and everything else. So even on the, the night of the, the penultimate fight, so not the finale, which was months later in, in Vegas at, at the Palms Casino, but the penultimate fight, everybody else, right, except for four fighters, two in the lightweight class and two in the welterweight class, have got, those four have got fights, but the other 14 people have got nothing. So they're just like partying, you oh, know, no. two, three in the morning, music, bah, 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 you know, and uh, you're just trying to get some sleep. So that, that, was, uh, that was challenging. You won it, didn't you? Yeah, I won uh, season nine. So yeah, it was the UK versus USA. Uh, Dan Henderson was the coach for the US team. Bisping was the coach for the UK team. And I won the uh, the welterweight division. Yeah. And then you went on to fight in the UFC. Yeah, I had a couple of, uh, two or three, uh, three more fights. And then I actually retired because of my neck. So I'd broken my neck playing rugby when I was younger. And the bones had kept growing in. I had uh, severe stenosis, which means the narrowing of a canal. And so uh, my spinal cord, which usually would have room, the bones were closing in on that spinal cord. And, and I saw a few experts and they said, significantly higher risk of paralysis. Now, my neck was hurting significantly, but for, for some reason, a couple of years after I stopped fighting, I don't know if it was that, I don't know if it was the diet, I, I have no idea. For some reason, the neck has significantly improved. And it feels like some of that 
I need to get more follow-up to, to see for sure. Mm. But it, it feels like that bones aren't pressing on my nerves anymore. I don't know. Uh, I'd have to look into it. You must have seen some gruesome injuries along the way. Like what, what's, what are some that stick out? Are the ones that you've had or ones that maybe you've inflicted on someone? Yeah, there's two, two things that come to mind. I fought someone, I think his name, his name was Sean Nagano, before the UFC. I took his arm and he wasn't tapping. This Japanese guy just had like real heart. And I was tapping on a Kimura, uh, trying to you know, break the shoulder, waiting for him to tap, didn't tap. And all of a sudden there's a complete tension and feel it rip like this. And then doesn't tap still, more pressure, feel it rip again until the arm's completely upside down. Right, like the elbows down here and the hands up here, and he was just so. I, I got a couple of things on him like that, and uh, he finally I got him in a, in a choke. But he was in so much pain after the fight, I, I couldn't fight for a year because I felt so bad and that I didn't want to injure someone like that again. I mean, at the end of the day, it's his fault because he should tap if you know, he's responsible for his own safety, right? Yeah. But I felt so bad, I just didn't feel good about fighting for about a year. So that's on, on me inflicting damage. And then I fought a guy called Matt Brown, uh, also known as the immortal. And in my first 30 seconds or so, the tip of his elbow hit me in the, right in the eyeball and my orbital floor blew out. So I had what's called a trapdoor fracture. So the fat that holds my eye in place, uh, if it doesn't blow out, your eye could disintegrate basically or just get crushed. So it's, it's a very thin bone that sits under your eye had a trapdoor fracture that um, blew out the orbital floor. The fat leaked into my sinus cavity. So you basically, if you look at an X-ray or a CT scan, you see like totally empty cavity here, black space, and then over here, a bunch of white fat sitting under there. And, and that stretched out a nerve under my eye, which supplies the whole left side of my face, which is still a problem to this day. So uh, for a while it was completely numb. And then after six or nine months, it became hypersensitive. And even now if I drink hot tea, you know, on my lip here or tongue. And at that point I was like, is this really worth it? Like $50,000 for a fight or whatever, including all the sponsorship. Is that really worth it? Um, so, and I fought after that, but. You must be absolutely bricking it. Even if you think you're going to beat the other guy, you must be bricking it on your way out to the, to the octagon. Cause knowing that shit yeah. can happen. And then also like it's full noise. Like it's, it's just about anything goes. Yeah. I mean, the fighting itself, I don't think I'm as scared about because we do that all the time in the gym. I think it's the, you know, the sort of expectation to win or the effort to not, you know, upset your friends and your coaches and, mm. you know, everyone that knows you. And then like you're what you, you know, you're in a stadium with 20,000 people and with millions of people watching around the world, there's a lot of pressure on it. So for a while I had a lot of adrenaline going into a fight and almost thinking, I don't want this to happen right now. Like I don't want to be here. Uh, and then I saw a sports psychologist who sort of reminded me, this is all a facade, you know, the cameras and the lights, and the, that's the facade. You do this all the time. It's nothing new. You fight like this, you know, five, six days a week. And I actually went too far the other way where I became a bit too calm. Uh, in the last couple of fights, I didn't have that, like, I think you want some adrenaline and some fear, right, mm. to, to help you in fighting. So it's you got to find that balance. And it, it, what's interesting is there's some guys that you watch in the UFC, you think, well, those guys are amazing. And then you get on the mat with them in training and they're not that great. And then vice versa, you've got guys that are just smash you in the gym and they go and fight professionally. You watch them on TV, they'll lose. And like, I don't understand how they just lost. So I think there's gym fighters and then there's like 
event fighters, right? And there's people that, and there's people in the middle, and there's obviously this crosses over. There's still the skill there, but there's people that just perform better on, you know, the people that are just better at performing on the night. Mm. And I never felt like I really got that locked down. Would you ever want to get in the ring with someone like McGregor? You know, I, I'm 43 now. Um, this is true. I, I always like sort of fantasize against just even training with some of these top guys today just to see the level. I think the levels got better. I think Connor is amazing. I think there's other amazing guys like Khabib and Israel Adesanya. I still think GSP is probably the greatest of all time, personally. Yeah, I would love to, to, to just get in the ring and spar with those guys just to, to see the level. What do you think makes Israel so good? Uh, I think his timing. I think he is super relaxed. I think because of so many pro fights that he's had in kickboxing, I think he probably fights as well, if not better on the night than he does in training. Just timing, right? You got to remember that fighting is an athletic endeavor. And so you get a lot of these self-defense people that think it's all about technique and sometimes they're out of shape, but fighting is an athletic endeavor, right? So it's the attributes that allow you to pull the techniques off that are important, even more so than the technique. So it's speed, timing, line formalization, footwork, you know, implementing the right technique at the right time. So there's all these attributes. And I just think he's an incredible athlete. So he hasn't got the greatest grappling, but he's good at stopping takedowns. He's good at getting back up if he's taken down. And he's really specialized in striking. And he's just extremely good at that with the, with the timing and speed and so forth. And, you know, those things will decline over time, right? But over time, you just don't maintain such good athleticism. And that will decline and there'll be someone else that will beat him. I still personally believe that GSP could actually beat him at middleweight. Really? Uh, I think the style match up. Yeah, I think the fact that GSP came back after a couple of years off, stepped up a weight category and won the belt, to me is just incredible. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah. So what's next for you? Um, so we've been focused on the film uh, on the Game Changers Institute, uh, which is a research, education, and advocacy platform promoting plant-forward eating. Again, not trying to tell people go vegan or vegetarian, but sort of offer the education and the research. We're publishing some papers at the moment in the peer-reviewed nutrition journals. We are um, we're putting together, we've partnered with the Green Sports Alliance, a major sort of environmental sports organization. All of the major leagues in the United States, the NBA, NFL, MLB are all members, 200 stadiums and teams. So we've actually become their official nutrition partner to uh, put together a plant-powered performance playbook, if you will, for the dietitians and teams and players, and also for the fans. We're doing stuff, some stuff with the US military that I can't really talk about at the moment, but in terms of, you know, warfighter nutrition, 
And there's a big sporting event that we're working with as well that I, I can't mention yet. But we're doing some stuff uh, in the sort of research, education, advocacy space, continuing to promote plant-forward eating. And that's uh, our focus at the moment. Is there anything on that website that a listener can go and check out that is interesting? Or is it the, the gamechangeinstitute.com is sort of just a, a bare bones website sort of telling what we're doing. You know, we're not doing a whole lot of stuff with the general public on that. If people want tips and recipes and things like that, they should go on gamechangersmovie.com. I think there's 80,000 words on that website of information around protein quantity and quality and tips and stuff about environment and health. And so that's a great resource on there. And then there's, uh, there's a bunch of recipes on there. You can sign up for our mailing list as well on gamechangersmovie.com. James Wilkes, thank you very much for your time, mate. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me, Andy. That was great. And thank you very much for listening. We'd love your feedback on the interview, so please do leave us a review and we'll be back again next week.